0: Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode four of series 10 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. There should be little doubt that human capital is a firm's greatest asset. However, this isn't enough. Organisations must also ensure that individuals are relationally positioned for success. In other words, bringing in the best people is only part of the solution. Firms must also bring out the best in people and that requires us to more intentionally leverage social capital. Those are not my words, although I wholeheartedly agree with their sentiment, but of Michael Arena, my guest for this week's episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Michael is the author of the brilliant book, Adaptive Space, how General Motors and other companies are disrupting themselves and transforming into agile organizations. He is also a faculty member of Penn's Masters in Organizational Dynamics, and is currently the VP for Talent and Development at Amazon Web Services. He is one of the world's foremost experts on organizational network analysis. In our conversation, Michael and I discuss why social capital is the next frontier for HR and how to measure it through the use of active and passive ONA. We look at why the pandemic will likely fast forward the future of work by five or 10 years. We look at the critical role that social capital plays in generating incubating and scaling innovation and the potential implications to bridge connections of a shift to virtual and hybrid work environments. We look at some typical use cases and specific examples of how ONA can be used in relation to understanding collaboration, M&A, research and development, culture and employee wellness. We also look at how to ensure ONA initiatives deliver value for the business and the workforce and properly address any concerns on ethics, privacy and trust. And finally, we look at what HR can do to prepare their organizations for an increase in remote and hybrid working. This episode is a must listen for anyone interested or involved in innovation, culture, people analytics, employee experience and social capital. So that's business leaders, CHROs and anyone in a talent development, people analytics, d or HR business partner role. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 10 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Panelit bridges the people data gap, enabling real-time uniform access to relevant people data, reports, and insights for CXOs, HR, and business managers. People data, including employee interactions and connections, is combined with business data, catalyzing new insights and intelligence. Predictive analytics moves the business from reactive to proactive, identifying correlations and points of intervention. The People Enhanced Data Movement empowers businesses to leapfrog to data-driven decision-making, eliminating bias and improving engagement, sales effectiveness, productivity, and as a result, business performance. Headquartered in Singapore, the company has a global footprint of clients as well as a diverse team and cultural perspective. You can find out more by visiting panelit.com. That's P a n a l y t com Today I'm delighted to welcome Michael Arena author of Adaptive Space and VP of Talent and Development at Amazon Web Services to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Michael, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to your background and your role at Penn University and some web services?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So thrilled to be here, David. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, yeah, I, a little bit about my background. I you know, I, I call myself a pracademic because uh, you know, I sort of bridge this you know, academic world with the practice world. I I reside at AWS um, right now and doing some really interesting work around networks. Um, but I but I've spent some time up in the MIT Media Lab, uh, which is where I really first delve into this topic we're going to discuss called network analysis, um, and then you know also teach at Penn uh, on again the same the same sort of uh, focus area. So. Uh so I, again back and forth between practice and academia and, and it's this you know core uh theory of my life, which is you know, good good theory and research has to be applied.
0: Yeah, and certainly I think, you know, without embarrassing you, I think you're definitely the practitioner that I know who talks most around what many people refer to as network analysis, others are referred to as, as social capital but all about understanding the value of a, of an organization's social capital and i think really important and on that front you know you, you know that's you know a lot of people listening to show most of them with an hr background just to explain to me you you've written that social capital is the next frontier for, for hr you know what is social capital and, and why is it increasing in importance
1: yeah i um, and and i say that not to minimize the value and need to think about human capital uh,
0: but, uh, you know,
1: by the very nature of HR, we have been focused on human capital for, for years um, and will continue to do so, you know, for the next decade plus. Um, but it's a social capital that I think is is a, a new space for uh, human resource professionals. And if you think about it this way, um, I you know, there's a lot of stored up what I call latent potential inside organizations that has more to do with how people are connected to one another than it does um, what they know. So in, like in simple layperson's terms, you know, I describe human capital as sort of a summarization, David, of what you and I know, our experiences, our competencies, our capabilities. Uh, but human capital is basically, or social capital, pardon me, is basically how well positioned we are inside of our organizations to leverage that human capital. And, and I think it's that part. I mean, we've all, we all know these people, right? The, really smart people inside of organizations uh that have a lot to say they're maybe the deep experts have a lot to say about you know a topic or two maybe all topics and you know they have to be the smartest person in the room and what they tend to do is you know describe to others why they're the smartest person in the room and then they get marginalized and pushed to the edge and all of a sudden their human capital quotient becomes diminished because they've got themselves marginalized and social capital is much more about how well you can get yourself positioned to leverage what you know and or to leverage what other people around you know through your social capital position.
0: How do we measure social capital?
1: You know, I, I will not be able to give you a short answer on this question. Um, you know, I, First of all, you got to double click into social capital. And it's easy to talk about the connections we have. Um, if you go into the science side of social capital, there are really two primary types of social capital. And I I'm glad to dive deep into both of these later. One is bonding social capital. Uh, you can think of that as what level of trust have we built within a team or within a small group? Um, and, and then there's bridging social capital. And that's really, you know, how well positioned are we to reach out across teams or reach out across functions or departments or maybe even beyond our own org? Um, so, so the way you measure those things are, you know, through this concept of organizational network analysis. Uh, And, you know, David, as you know very well, you know, there are all kinds of ways to do that. You could do that through a simple survey approach, um, which is basically asking the question, you know, David, who are the five to 10 people that you're connected with on an ongoing basis? Uh, You can do that through what we would call passive channels. So that would be email. uh, That could be, um, or could be, you know, sort of chat messages, uh, meetings that you're in. But it's sort of these passive channels where we can pull that signal out of the data streams. Um, And then, you know, probably my favorite, uh, but by far the hardest one to to use is, you know, the the social signals that I learned up in the media lab, which are sensor badges. So wearables uh, where you can look at like we could hang this device around our neck and we can look at as others are doing that, we can look at how well connected they are to one another. Um, so that those are some of the ways to be able to
0: measure it. And obviously, many of people listening to this will see seen those network analysis diagrams and all those little bubbles of people and, and who connects people to who. And I guess where you see a, a kind of tight bubble together, it could be a team. And as you said, the bridging connection could be that person that connects that team to another team within the organization which I know is we're going to talk about a bit later around innovation, is, is, is so important.
1: I love how you just simulated the network and, and you know, the, the airspace around us. So
0: It seems good for many things, and I think it's, it's, it's definitely good for that. So when I speak with chief human resource officers and particularly people analytics leaders, I think, I think the potential benefits of social capital and including network analysis as a part of their work is, is actually getting better understood. But I think there's there's concerns on areas such as as privacy and ethics, and this this can be a bit of a blocker. You talked about the the passive um, data sources that we can tap into and wearables, for example. W- what advice would you provide to your peers in in trying to overcome these hurdles?
1: Yeah, uh, super serious conversation, um, and I think you know being super concerned about ethics and privacy and you know protecting individuals um, is really critical. Um, And I think you you gotta be very thoughtful about all those things on the very front end. Um, And I I treat them each differently based on which method I would use. You know, if if somebody was going to put a badge around their neck, you know, or put a wearable on, um, and or if somebody's going to participate in a survey, you know, uh, just be very, very disclosing. And and I consider those to be opt-in channels, you know, and just be very forthright. Like the times where I've used wearables, I'd literally have people sign an agreement, um, a joint agreement, like this is what the data will be used for, and then people will opt in or opt out. Um, so I think those tend to be easier opportunities to, to sort of manage this privacy thing. You leave it at the individual level, it's an opt-in. Um, there are a couple ways you could handle it, you know, in the, on the contracting side. I always ask leaders that I work with, you know, do you need to know individuals' names? You know, in other words, is this anonymous? Um, or is it confidential? Like, will a small group of researchers know individuals' names, um, or do you want to be transparent? And and I think, you know, contracting on the front end, both with the individual and or the leader, matter immensely. When we get to these passive channels, David, which I think is is the part that's most sensitive, um, you know, I, I tend to, I can't think of a time where I leave names. Uh, one thing I will say is I'm thrilled that you know the people analytics space resides inside of HR, because HR better than any other function inside of organizations, you know treats personal sensitive information every single day, and they know how to protect individual employees. Uh, but even going a step farther than that, I don't know that with passive channels, you, you need to know individuals' names. Um, and I, I think that for, I can't think of a study I've done from a passive standpoint Where I've kept names intact, uh, because I'm looking at the aggregate. I'm looking at what are the patterns across the team or within a team. So I think there are all kinds of ways to deal with this privacy issue, Um, but but the main thing is just be like super open, very forthright, and the more you can you know have an opt-in model, the better off everyone will be.
0: And I guess you're you know with most projects that you work that you're undertaking. Yes, clearly you're trying to find out some benefit for the organisation, but there's going to be benefit to the employees as well, i.e. if you're trying to understand the networking behaviours of of successful salespeople, then actually all salespeople want to understand that so they can actually be more successful themselves. So I guess that transparency is very important. And I guess the other point is perhaps... You know, I've seen with a, especially when you get to the vendor community, sometimes it's a kind of an either-or, active or passive, and actually, you possibly, probably, one of you might want to use both.
1: Yeah, I, I would say I, a couple of things in in your comments. One is always remember that the network social capital is one dimension of an individual's uh, performance, right? And it's not probably not even the predominant one. Uh, you know how a person. You know, what a person knows, uh, you know, all the human capital quotients that we mentioned before also need to be evaluated. And you don't get that in, in a you know, social capital ONA lens. Second piece of, of what you said is, you know, this this whole concept of um, really, uh, well, I, you know, you want to know patterns. You want to know patterns. And, you know, there, could, there have been times where people have decided to opt in and wanted to see how they perform inside the network. Even in those cases, I tend to push their own individualized information to them, but no one else's because uh, you don't want to you don't want this to be misinterpreted because it's one data set um, and, and it's, you know, it's it's a very narrow but deep data set that gets to the second part of your conversation, which is passive and active. Passive is super good uh, to study the dynamic f- effects of a network across time because a network is never static. It changes month to month. Uh, and and I would say the active or survey based is super good at creating context. You know, you don't get context inside of a passive channel. I might not be in in a, in a survey. I'm able to ask you, David, who do you go to for career advice, or who do you go to to find new ideas. I got to presume those things in a passive channel. So the con- the marriage of those two things together is a super rich data set. Um, if you can find a way to do that across time.
0: I think it's such an important topic. I think it was good that we could spend some some time on on that particular area. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper now to the the role of social capital in innovation. Um, But before we do, um, can you outline some of the typical areas where companies are using network analysis?
1: Yeah, it's um I I I mean the use cases are just, you know, you can I'll, just about anything you can think of. I I'll, I'll go through like some of my favorite studies. Um you know, I think where I got you know really introduced to ONA is through looking at acquisitions. You know, how quickly can two groups come together and what can you do to encourage, you know, interactions on the front end of a merger or acquisition? Uh m- maybe one of my favorite studies ever. Was looking at a research and development team, and trying to look at how this research and development team in particular could bridge out and work with its clients proactively, so that they weren't building something in a vacuum, uh, and they weren't so cohesive that they they weren't considering you know the business in this case what the customer or the business needed, uh, and you know I could go on and on you know how do you how do you evaluate culture maybe maybe sort of the most emerging body of work I'm part of right now is a piece of work I'm doing with Rob Cross around, you know, culture and thinking about how culture spreads inside of an organization. Uh, We tend to think of culture as this top-down, you know, sort of leadership-driven activity, but what we're finding in our research is it's much more about the local influencers. If you really want culture to sort of spread and manifest across an organization, almost a three X, a three to one ratio between individual influencers, local influencers and leaders, you know, culture is more caught than taught. So, so I've, I've seen it used for all these different things. Um, and, and I could, you know, literally go on and on for hours about other use cases, uh,
0: and have only scratched the surface. It's a very good point, actually, for those that Listening, who might really want to find out more? You published Adaptive Space, I think it was two years ago now, and there are a number of other examples of of those types within the and obviously deeper examples in in the book as well, aren't there? So, yeah. So you alluded in the, the last the, as you started the answer to the last question about the crisis and the, the concern that we have around network erosion, particularly in in virtual uh, virtual working. So we're going to go and kind of look a little bit deeper on that now. So. We, you know, we're in the midst of the biggest remote working experiment in history. It's forced, of course. It's not something that we've chosen. And there's a lot of noise around there about how productivity is increased with virtual working. Uh, I know we both share concerns around, around the, on the impact on areas such as well-being, culture and innovation. You know, what are some of the things that you're seeing from the data?
1: Yeah, it's, um, first of all, I think what we will learn from this experience um, or grand experiment where we are all part of this experiment, um, I think what we will learn from this will fast forward the future work five to maybe as many as 10 years into the future. I mean, we all know that we're not going back to the way things were. Um, Even when the world settles down and we get a vaccine for this virus, um, you know, we have created new possibilities and the human beings inside of organizations are going to have a perspective of how they want to work. Um, And, you know, I think we've learned a lot as a result of that. Um, Back to, you know, sort of the social capital aspects of this, um, where I am most concerned, David, and we just talked about, you know, bridging and bonding is what we're seeing in the early signals. Um, First of all, let's start here. Like I think all of us have been stunned that productivity has generally increased in these times. Um, you know I think most most managers would have said if you would have thought that everyone was going to go virtual and for the next six to nine months, and it will obviously be longer than that, you know we're going to be uh, disconnected from one another, at least other than through Zoom and other other social channels, I think most of us would have anticipated that productivity would have dropped. Well, we haven't seen that. Um, and quite the contrary, We've actually seen, in most cases, productivity has increased, Um, and and one of the reasons for that is what you need to be productive is more bonding social capital. Uh, So in the very very early days, what we've seen is, you know, your and and a lot of this research has already been published is your very closest contacts um, have actually solidified and maybe even increased the number of interactions you have from a bonding social capital standpoint. The research says your five closest colleagues, your connections with them have increased by 15%. Um, at the same point, you know we're seeing a rapid decay in bridging connections um, already. And Ron Burt predicted this uh, in many, many years ago, or studied this many years ago. Even in physical settings, what we know is that bridging social capital, those interactions you have with other people beyond your team or beyond your local cluster, um, are far more susceptible to decay. Um, and Ron Burt's work in, in a physical setting said, nine out of 10 of those newly formed connections will erode within the first year. Uh, and we all know that. Like you go to a conference and you have the best intentions to stay connected. And nine out of 10 times, you, you reach out to that person a time or two, but within a year, you know that that connection has severed. That's what we're seeing in the virtual world. Uh, a 30% drop. Uh, pretty sudden uh, early drop in bridging social capital. And you already know, based on what I said about innovation, why that's a problem. It means that we will be able to move faster because we're going to have less um, disruptions for those local cohesive teams, but we're going to lose new ideas. Uh, so on the discovery side, we're not going to have nearly as fertile of new ideas. Um, and then ultimately, we're going to lose the ability to scale those ideas across the broader organization. In order to get them implemented, so so my real long-term concern is around innovation, um, and and I think we're seeing the early signals. Uh, time will tell. Um, we're very creative. Uh, we're a very creative species as human beings. Uh, we may find ways to work around this, and it's certainly not impossible to maintain bridge connections uh, virtually. But I but but I think you know we're already seeing signals of of that beginning to erode. You know,
0: what are some of the things we can do to limit bridge erosion? In a, in a virtual hybrid working environment.
1: So this is where, you know, so that's the, that's the scary news or the downside. Uh, the upside is, you know, there have been many professions that we've learned from even back, you know, in studying this in the physical environment, uh, you know, sales folks, uh, investment bankers, people whose jobs are to maintain those distant connections um, are have proven to us that you can do it. You just need to be far more intentional in nurturing those relationships and you need to be you need to build much more repetition. You know, one of my favorite experiments that was done over the last decade with, you know, sort of connections and trust and social capital was experimenting with different channels and you know, the experiment was done up at University of Michigan and David what the what the study says is, you know, it takes about 6 interactions for individuals in a physical environment to start to build the, the maximum level of trust. So if we work together uh, six meetings or six one-on-one interactions, uh, maybe a couple of coffees mixed into that, you know, we tend to reach a level of trust that that is at its almost height at that point in time. Um, it takes, you know, now place that into this video channel, it takes about 16 interactions. So, you know, sort of three X that of the number of um, almost. 3x that of the number of face-to-face interactions, the good news is it can be done. The bad news is, you know, it requires many, many more repetitions in the number of interactions. So that just means that we need to be more intentional. Um, And and I think there are some things that HR professionals can do to nurture that. Um, But that's, you know, that's sort of the core of where we are in, in maintaining building first and then ultimately maintain in these distant connections or bridge uh, connections.
0: I know innovation isn't the only concern that you've got about this sort of shift to to, to virtual working. What are some of the other things that you're seeing?
1: Yeah, and I I think these will come a little longer term, although I think we're seeing some stuff on well-being already. Um, You know, engagement, interestingly, has gone up if you look at the engagement research. Uh, But I think it's a little misleading because... You know what we're beginning to see is, you know, as many as 20% of individuals are beginning to feel lonely in this environment. Um, you know, if you look at that on the network, what that means is they may engage in a couple team meetings throughout the day, but they're moving to the edge of their network, even even inside their own team, and they're becoming more and more isolated. And that's super problematic for us. You know, um, Rob Cross's work says that those people on the fringe of a network are 46 more likely to leave um, and and quit uh, so so the that's uh, you know so I think we've got this um, and and of course there's a well-being aspect to that as well you know at our core we're social beings and we want to be part of a group so as you move to the edge you become more lonely um, I think well-being is affected and i I think from an organizational standpoint um, not only do you need to pay attention to well-being but you know this this whole concept of uh, Maybe losing some valuable people could be a problem. And it happens on the opposite side as well, David. The other piece I would say is the one place where we've seen some productivity dips is with new employees um, who were virtually onboarded. So those employees that never saw um you know individuals face to face, you know, we've seen as much as a fifteen to twenty percent drop in productivity, at least initially. Um, and you know, it's it's a lot harder. You know, the, the research says that it takes somewhere like three years for those, even in a normal world, for those folks to assimilate into a network. Um, and and I, I'm just super concerned that that's going to be even more difficult in this virtual world that we live in.
0: I think this this is where we can start to combine because, you know, great thing that a lot of organizations are doing in this crisis, they they're seeking feedback from employees more regularly through 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 more surveys, more poll surveys, t- targeted questions as well, as well, based on what they've learned from previous surveys. And I guess that's where you can combine that kind of active engagement questions, and not you know, and wellbeing questions with some of the, the network analysis as well, because then you know, as people start to say they feel lonely, maybe you can start to track how they're actually moving to the periphery of, of a network as well, and, and hopefully that or the network can maybe give you the early the early warning signal that actually you need to to make some interventions to support those people
1: yeah, no, I think it's a super important point you just made, and it gets a little bit back to the you know the context and you know sort of ongoing um dynamic of a network you know changing across time you know you don't always have to just do surveys to do o n a you could also do engagement surveys and connect that to the network and look at like what how's sediment traveling on the network? Um how's energy traveling on the network? Um and you begin to get a hint um or an early signal is a better way of thinking about it in regards to how to intervene. Not so much at the individual level, but at the collective level. And I think this is where HR plays a real like I've never been more long on where we are with people analytics and the partnership with HR as a whole. Because you know businesses need us more than ever, and I think that you know being able to to get much more um, specific about what we're studying and giving leaders sort of early signals about what what's about to happen with things like well-being or you know innovation or bridge erosion and or frankly even productivity. Um, you know I I'm, I am not completely convinced that productivity won't suffer longer term as well, um, although I may I may be a minority on that. Particular um, argument right now, but you know the way the way you study that and the way you help with that is you catch early signal through all the people analytics tools, not just network analysis, and and you build the case you know for leaders to think about this stuff uh, preemptively as opposed to reactively.
0: Yeah, and and actually on that um, long term sort of impact on productivity you know, we're still really in the early days. You know it might not seem like it. we've been, sit- we've been sitting mostly at home, um, some, of, some of us exclusively from home, for sort of seven, eight months. But actually, relatively, we're still in the early, the early stages of of what of this crisis, probably well into next year, um, as that shift from the physical to a virtual or predominantly virtual working environment. Do you think there's a little bit of a risk of overconfidence bias on, on how well-equipped we are to, to cope in a virtual environment?
1: This has been one of the things I've been touting quite loudly, David, is this concept of being overly confident. You know, none of us thought we could be as productive. I I think. I mean, I, I may be in the minority, but I think most managers would have said we we won't be as productive in these virtual settings. We have been. Um, and I'm I'm a bit concerned that we are falsely convinced that this will sustain itself. Um I think there are some, you know, based on what I've already talked about with well-being uh, burnout, you know, by adding more hours, which is certainly contributing to the productivity improvement, but also this um, onboarding of new people. And I don't I, like, we we should not ignore this phenomenon of new employees dropping in productivity. And what that means is, um, in fact, two studies, you know, um, Mercer did a study not long ago that said that 94% of managers and employees you know, believe that they've been at least as productive, but mostly more productive in these times. So I get really worried whenever 94% of people say anything uh, because I start to think over confidence bias. And then the second piece of that, like you got to drill down a little bit deeper. And there was this really great study done a, a few months ago from BCG that said that your connections matter to productivity. And what they basically what they proved um, and looked across multiple countries is that you're more productive um, if you're satisfied with your connections. And they used connections broadly. So I don't know if they were you know, thinking about bridging or bonding. It didn't get into that in the study. But basically what they said, David, was if you were satisfied with your connections, you're going to be more productive. Um, if you weren't, um, you actually were not going to be more productive. Now, the good news is most people were satisfied, so we saw a lift. Um, but it was it was like a two to three X difference between productivity-wise between those that were dissatisfied and those that were satisfied. Um, why does that matter? Well, because as we onboard more, you could anticipate that as we onboard more and more people um, and they don't feel like they belong to an organization because they've never showed up on site, They're going to become more and more dissatisfied with their connections, which says, you know, there's at least early signal that suggests, you know, productivity could even slip. Um, I hope I'm wrong. Like and again, I've said already, you know, we're very creative beings and we find ways around this. And I'm hopeful we'll get more intentional about pulling those people into the network sooner and better and faster. Uh, But but I'm you know, there are at least some early signals there around what might happen with productivity and those are some of the studies that i'm paying a lot of attention to right now
0: yeah it's fascinating and i guess there'll be more research coming out almost on a weekly basis i think over the coming months and i know you and rob cross and others are doing ongoing analysis and research at the moment so this leads nicely onto the question we're asking all the all the guests on the show in this series So thinking broader now from from an HR leader perspective, what can we do as HR leaders to help prepare our organizations for a future where, as you say, we might leap five to 10 years um, into the future of work, where there will be an increase in remote and hybrid working? What are some of the things that we we could do?
1: So I think that the two things I want to say loudest in regards to this is lean into your people analytics function now. Um, Don't be responsive. Be proactive uh don't don't wait um to study this stuff like we this is emerging none of none of us know how the future is going to emerge uh which is super um intriguing and exciting for some of us that like to spend time there um at least mentally but don't wait like don't one of the concerns I have is we tend to be more responsive as a function h r so lean into your people analytics group today. Go collect some of these signals, run some experiments, run some studies. Don't follow the masses. I get really concerned with the organizations that are saying we're going to, you know, we got some early signal. You know, this is, again, another uh, sort of symptom of being overconfident. We're just going to go virtual because there are all kinds of benefits, which is true. I get really concerned about that because no one has studied this in a longitudinal way. Um, so start collecting signal with your people and Linux folks first. Um, on a more practical basis, I would say a few things. Um, like really, um, I mean, I just think that there are some things we can do. I'll call virtual etiquette, you know, things we can do to make this channel more fruitful. Um, and I would say, you know, things like make meetings shorter. Um, you know, we as human beings get worn out, you know, uh, you know, adult learning principles say you can absorb for about 20 minutes and then you need a break. Um, you know, I would say like, if you've got hour-long meetings, condense them to 50 minutes. If there are 30-minute meetings, condense them to 20 minutes, um, and/or you know, add the keep those last 10 minutes to be free flow. Um, you know, because it's very easy to get um, super agenda focused in this virtual setting. We have much less natural serendipity, so build in serendipity. So short burst would be the first thing I would say. Many more repetitions, which you've heard me say already. If if you need to build bridge connections across, you know, if you needed to do that once a month before, aim it twice or three times a month today um, as a manager. And then the other thing is more unstructured time in our agendas. Uh, leave some blank time so that people can have the water cooler conversations um, and people can have unscripted dialogue about things that they won't natural, that, that haven't been anchored into the agenda in a formal way Uh, Because that's what we do at the end of every physical meeting, right? You know, three or four people stay behind. They have a conversation and they're, you know, sort of navigation to the doorway or they connect up with someone else in a serendipitous way. So artificially create serendipity. And I I just think there's like this whole set of things we can do to continue to encourage rich social interactions in a virtual way, Uh, but they require much more intentionality and much more repetition. Than what we would have otherwise uh, had naturally,
0: and I'm and I'm guessing a lot of the, some of the work that people analytics you said lean into your people analytics team, which I completely agree, and you know, and actually, it's fascinating some of the work that people analytics teams are doing in their organizations to try to reimagine what the the future workplace could look like. And I guess you know, is are you seeing much work where the teams are kind of involved in understanding the types of work? that maybe can be done in a virtual environment versus in a physical environment because again that that possibly talks to the innovation part maybe a yeah, little bit. Yeah,
1: I I you know, I have a I have a view that we're not going to go to so a lot of people are saying we're going to land in a hybrid, you know, post-covid. Um and you know, certain individuals are going to choose that they want to work in the office and certain individuals are going to choose they work vert, they want to work virtually. I think that's only half the answer, David. Um if I go back to the innovation construct that we were talking about, um, I think we're going to get far more sophisticated about the future of work. Um, this grand experiment is going to teach us so much. Um, and I do believe that you know, virtual interaction, you know, being virtual, you know, if you think about like a software developer, a coder, um, if they're sitting at their laptop and they have very few disruptions and what they're doing is coding every single day, which is a deep concentration task. Um being virtual is actually a very good thing, um, but that's to say that they're always coding, and we all know that that's not true. There are times where they're discovering what they should code. Uh, what are the new features in a product? If you're an engineer, you know engineering and building the frameworks or models is a deep concentration. But there are times where you need to be discovering new engineering methods, new things to engineer around or design around. Um, so, so I believe, and then ultimately. You need to connect whatever you code from a software standpoint, or build from an engineering standpoint. You know you need to partner with, you know, manufacturing and/or sales or all these other entities. Um, so I go back to the very early part of our conversation, David. I think that we're going to be thinking about work modalities in a much more sophisticated way. Um, you know, just using my nomenclature, and you can substitute this with anything. You know, there will be times where we need to be in discovery mode. And bridging connections matter, and those are easier to do in physical settings, not exclusively, but I think we will pull people back into the office at times, um, I, very intentionally to ensure that we're still discovering, and we're still learning and discovering new ideas. Then people can work in deep, concentrated pockets and/ or with their small team as they're iterating very well, virtually, and we'll call that development or productivity. Those modes, you know, will be home. Those modes will be virtual and or office by choice. And then ultimately, I think you know, bridging connections matter again, as I said before, with how do, you, how do you scale or diffuse? And I think that's going to require people to go back into the office. So I, can, I, I think of it as an agile hybrid. Um, and the agile being people will flow in and out of the office uh, based on the modality of work at any given point in time. And I, I, what I love is I think the people in Lydic space is going to be able to help build that signal, uh, and help point people to where they could be and should be for optimal performance. Um, and I, I you know, I'm very I'm long on the future, uh, but I, I just want to be very, very cautious, uh, not to jump towards A or B. I think it's too simple that way. I think we're going to have a much more sophisticated solution emerge. And all I just said was a hypothesis. We'll see. Like, I'm sure I'm wrong about much of that. Uh, But, you know, the cool part is we're studying it and and we collectively will figure out new ways of working that I think will be better than before.
0: Well, all I can say, Michael, is next time we have you on the podcast, we can actually look back on this time and see what else we learned that we didn't envisage um, in these 45 minutes or so. Thanks so much for being a guest on the on the podcast, Michael. Can can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, and find out more about your work and obviously adaptive space? Thanks, David. I, I really appreciated this conversation. And
1: you know, I you know, clearly we can both get passionate and could probably go for another couple of hours on this. Um, you know, certainly um, to answer your question directly, LinkedIn, I'm um, certainly on LinkedIn if you if you want to reach out. Um, you know, some websites, so adaptivespace.net is, you know, one website that, you know, goes deeper into these types of connections for sure. And then um, you know, kind of a, a you know, it's less about a connection to me and more about the connection to the work. Um networkroles.com, so the plural networkroles.com is a self-assessment, a free self-assessment where um anyone can go out and really look at, you know, their predis their personal predisposition towards, you know, some of these work modalities, but more importantly, bridging or bonding social capital. So, uh, so uh, you know, those are a couple resources and a couple, you know, connect points. Um, and, you know, again, you know, I'm super looking forward to the way this all emerges um, in the whole people analytics space, but I think networks have never been more important. Um, and it feels like we are really at a tipping point in the way we think about these things.
0: And what we'll do, Michael, when we put the podcast out, I'll put some links to some of the articles that you've published this year as well, because I think they dive deeper into some of the areas that that, that we've talked about over the last 45 minutes or so. It's always a pleasure speaking to you, Michael. Thank you very much for sharing your time and, and knowledge with, with our listeners. Thanks, David, it was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via podcast app of choice if you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the MyHR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the MyHR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Renald Kumar, Vice President and Global HR Head at Wipro about how people analytics enables personalization across Wipro's 200,000 strong organization. So don't miss that one. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.